Welcome to One of Two Hundred. I'm joined by my co-host Branko Matić. How you doing, Branko? Hey, great. Uh, Merry Christmas, I think. Yeah, Merry. Which uh, is what it is right now. That, that that's what it is at this very moment. Yeah, this is being released closer to Christmas, um, but the date today is uh, the 20th of December um, yeah. in New Zealand. Uh, just because I'm expecting by the time this is released, we may have had a lot of things change uh, in, mm. in regards to the topic we're talking about. Uh, we're also joined well, by... I was going to say, it's the it's, it's 20th over here too. Just, oh, uh, wow. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This is one of these just... rare moments of synergy for the Where we are in the same uh, crew. The same day. Incredible. That's right. Exactly. And we're also joined by Mark Rickaby. Welcome to One of Two Hundred, Mark. Hello, hello, everyone. Here at the end of all things, um, Twitter related. <laughs> it hey, does you know, feel like that. But by the time this, uh, by the time you're listening to this, Twitter might be gone. Um, unlikely, true. unlikely, but I think it could be. I mean, I think I think there's a lot to be thankful for because a few months ago uh, we were talking about uh, nuclear Armageddon, and so the fact that we've managed to get to the end of 2022 without, um, you know, at least one nuke being set off somewhere is something to celebrate, um, you know, as well as the birth of Christ and everything else. But we're not here to talk about Christmas. Um, this isn't really a Christmas episode. It just happens to line up um, with that period of the holidays. Uh, we had to talk about the Twitter files. Uh, and the takeover of, I'd, I'd say, the best social media platform. Um, I, I'm definitely, happy to, definitely, absolutely. Um, the most by, pleasant uh, to use, certainly. Yeah, and the one with the best uh, independent uh, left media on it. And I'm not just talking about one of 200. But in general, I, I, I genuinely think that there's a lot of good stuff on here. There's been a lot of opportunity for, um, you know, left media unions uh, and the like to organize um, and to promote what they're doing. Uh, but a few months ago, it was bought uh, by the world's previously richest man, Elon <laughs> Musk. And yeah, it's been a bumpy ride since then. Uh, but Bronco, the do you want to um, quickly give us that rundown? He, he was the world's previously richest man, and, and now undisputedly the world's stupidest man, I think, I think <laughs> has revealed himself to be. Uh, I mean, I feel like, I, I will summarize this, but I feel like everyone knows the, the story. I, I, even people who, uh, have, like, who I know that you know, aren't really that super plugged into politics, everyone knows about the Twitter stuff, which is kind of surprising. Because you know, it's a it's a weird Twitter's a, a very specific world that like uh, people in the media and in politics are in, and then and also you know people uh, use it for pop culture reasons and stuff as well. But it's it's largely the media and politics uh, worlds that are that are in there, and and so it's uh, it is a bubble, and it's weird when that bubble when when this world that we're all kind of ensconced in uh expands a little bit and suddenly people who have who, who are not inside of it who do not understand the strange culture and the the kind of unpleasantness of twitter uh get a peek and, and seem to seem to sort of also know what's going on you know what i mean because yeah apart from the unpleasantness bit apart from the unpleasantness bit and they're finally able to, to experience a warm embrace uh that twitter officer saw um and i'd say it's a pretty good piece of marketing done by elon musk um to get yeah. us to that point <laughs> Pretty good piece of marketing, uh, a pretty bad piece of business decision making. <laughs> so, you know, you win some, you lose some. Uh, what happened? Uh, Elon Musk, uh, months ago, I want to say, um, 
was uh, seemingly upset by the banning of the Babylon Bee, which is a not very funny conservative satirical outlet, sort of in the mold of the Onion, but um, for the right, it's fucking tragic. Um, it's kind of like when the Daily Show was a thing, and then uh, the the like Fox wanted to make their own version of the Daily Show, uh, but with a conservative leaning. But then they forgot to put in funny jokes, and so that's basically what the Babylon Bee is. Uh, but Musk loved it, and it was banned. And he sort of jokingly was kind of talking about buying Twitter, you know, being the richest man in the world. He has all this money sitting around, and you know, what what else are you going to do with a bunch of with like you know, uh, what, $44 billion. Um, you're not going to, I don't know, buy homes for the homeless or feed the poor. Or solve wood hunger, apparently, which is something yeah, else. Or go to Mars. He is offered to do. The thing that, all, all the these thing things. that meant to be doing. I save children yeah. in a mine somewhere. Exactly. So he decided to use that money to uh, uh, buy Twitter. And then he uh, uh, he became CEO officially what? Like, I mean, God, it feels, now it feels like it's been going on forever. But I mean, it was only like a month ago. Uh, maybe a little over. What in October was when he took over? It's thirty first of um, October, I think. There, oh wow! So he really straddled the, the the months there. Yeah. So then uh, he's taken over, and then it's just been an absolute, just uh, nightmare ever since. I mean, it's kind of been. I I have not been uh super closely following the day to day decision making of Elon Musk as CEO. Um, because there's so much else going on in the world, and 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 kind of to some extent, frankly. I say this despite the fact that we're recording a specific podcast about this um, kind of more important stuff going on in the world. So it's sort of just been in the background of my 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 life and my thinking as I as I go you know go along with my day. Um, but it has been kind of funny to just watch it, you know, him just careening from horrible decision to horrible decision. Uh, like I think the, the earliest thing he wanted to do was to <laughs> he wanted to to get rid of the. Uh, uh, basically give anyone a check mark, which of course is the, the way that you protect yourself on Twitter from, I mean, I, I feel even stupid explaining this because I feel like everyone who's listening is on Twitter, but, but okay. And in, in the case that you're not, it, it's the way that you protect against identity theft and from someone, you know, basically uh, pretending to be you and sort of defaming you and stuff. And then he basically just allowed anyone to get it. And he said, well, then people point out the obvious problem with this. And then he said, well, I'll, I'll add an, a, a special extra blue uh, blue check mark and, and an extra thing that says that you're verified. Uh, then he was going to add a whole thing where basically it would have completely ruined the entire point of Twitter by making you pay for a subscription. So it, and he said that if you didn't pay, then all your tweets would get downgraded and so on and so forth, uh, which completely destroys the point of Twitter because it, it removes the kind of only meritocratic element of the platform, which allows anyone with, with you know, any sort of anything with good to say or anything interesting to say to be able to compete uh, uh, on the same level as, you know, a, a major news outlet and so on and so forth. There's been just, it's, it's just been chaos and chaos. I think the latest thing that's happened um, that, that everyone's talking about is um, that, that he banned, uh, after, after buying the platform and saying, I'm doing this because I'm a free speech absolutist, I believe in free speech, I think anyone should have free speech, even people whose views I find horrible and terrible and I disagree with, he, he uh, uh, banned um, an account that was posting, uh, based on publicly available information, but but nonetheless uh, posting um, the coordinates of his private jet, uh, which he claimed was going to be assassination coordinates and was tantamount to doxing his family. So he banned that guy. And then a bunch of, he banned a bunch of journalists who were writing about 
that band slash also just people who have kind of needled him in the past and insulted him. And then a bunch of people got up in arms about that. Meanwhile, at the same time, we also have this massive leak that he sort of orchestrated that he gave to a certain select number of journalists that kind of uh, shed light on um, previous uh, uh, censorship by Twitter and, 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 and how it went down. And there's been a lot of controversy about that. Some people think it was valuable and interesting. I think so. That's me. Um, some people don't. Uh, that may be one of you guys. I don't know. Maybe both of you. Um, anyway, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to summarize just a, a one and a half months of, of absolute bedlam in like five minutes, and, and that's about the best I can do. I'm sure everyone listening to this already knows exactly what I'm talking about, but but there you go. That's my, my best attempt. Hey, well done. No, good work. I think you covered <laughs> like all the main things. Was there anything um, that you wanted to add as a frame of that, Mark? Um, uh, yeah, it's just my head's kind of spinning, just really reflecting on just it's been like a month and just it's just been one like clown car after clown car, just ridiculous kind of antics. I think I've been watching it really closely from time to time because I kind of switch off as well because it's just so inane. But um, I guess from my perspective, being somewhat involved, somewhat sort of um, irrecoverably deep in the tech industry. It's actually kind of important. Um, and Twitter is fascinating um, technology and the way that the, the way that it's gone down from an organizational perspective is also very interesting. So I was and uh, I've worked with people who um, who came out of Twitter. So I'm very, very curious to really kind of get a sense of like what was happening um, from the software engineering side. Um, I think as well with with these so-called Twitter files, I mean, um, for me, I think there are, is some interesting, relevant stuff there, aside from all the political stuff, because it actually corroborates some of the previous stories, like the um, head of security that got fired at the start of this year uh, and then testified uh, to a Senate committee or something, I think. Uh, I can't remember the exact details. It was back in August. And some of the, some of the details in what has come out since Musk actually corroborates some of the things that he was presenting to the US government as like, uh, this company is outrageous and egregious in terms of the way it's treating its user data uh, and some of the security risks there. So I think that was kind of, that was like that in and of itself, I think is, is relevant. Um, but well, it's not well, like Musk buying it has made it better. <laughs> what dating, for sure. Yeah. We, we'd be remiss by the way to mention that when early on he uh, decided to fire thousands of people and then he realized that um, that was going to completely ruin the company because all these people did actually pretty essential things and so he had to then scramble to rehire a bunch of the people that he fired <laughs> yeah and a lot of people were refusing so this is sort of like all the sort of gossip that was going around in the software engineering circles with like um people were getting these random emails, random messages in like the middle of the night, like 12, 2 a.m. Um, and people being called, like fired on Friday, then called on like Sunday to see like, um, can you come back? Um, it just all sorts of, uh, also like, I think one thing that has been really keeping people like sort of obsessed with it is just, we haven't seen that level of destruction at a company of this scale and you're know, doing having this much influence on on culture. Like um, there hasn't been a tech company kind of self-destruct like this before. Yeah, so publicly, um, right? So it's like it's a new thing. So and people are very really curious to know 
you know, um, is it going to break? Like, how long is it going to go on for? Like, we just, we, there's a lot of things we just don't know. Um, and yeah, like well, every week brings a new thing. You know, I mean, capitalism and tech in particular is all about uh, creative destru uh, de destruction. And what is more creative destruction than uh, buying a company and immediately running it into the ground? Uh, I mean, that's, that's uh, if you want to talk about disruption, Man, he, he really disrupted that space. It's the um the Peter Thiel ideology, right? Uh, move fast and break things. Um, so it, like, it, it, this which is, is also, by the way, it's also the uh, the Tesla uh, business model. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's. I think it's a bit different when it's like this is a strategy for moving really fast and gaining advantage compared to like this is literally your business model, like selling broken shit. <laughs> well, I, you know, before we get into the actual, uh, I guess, the merits of the, the Twitter files and the interesting things in it, I think also we, we should mention that, that if nothing else, uh, Elon Musk has done uh, all of us a great favor by uh, very publicly exposing that if you have a bunch of money, you're not actually necessarily brilliant. You're just a guy who happens to have a bunch of money. Uh, and maybe, you know, came into a company once it had already been founded by two other guys um, and then they left and you just ended up being CEO. Uh, I mean, you know, it, it's very clear watching him kind of uh, just make these capricious decisions, whether about banning or whether about firing and hiring back people, or, you know, uh, uh, making these decisions around how to restructure Twitter that don't make any sense. Um, I mean, it's clear that the guy has, well, the guy has hired his own supply for sure, but he's, he's made it very clear that, yeah, being a, a, a rich guy and a billionaire does not actually necessarily mean that you're particularly smart. Um, it could just be a bunch of, uh, good luck and circumstances. That's certainly the case with Musk, I think. I didn't know it's not just five to chess. I, I think that's the question that every Musk fanboy is asking. Maybe he's just so much smarter than you that it looks like idiocy. <laughs> yeah well this is the this is the thing that he was hinging on i think that for a long time it's like can't be possible that someone who made that much money and who runs a you know several massive companies is actually this uh this much of an idiot and then i think i mean i think for a, a, some of us who, who follow this stuff you know semi closely we we realized that he was a while ago but now it's been made clear to everyone there's, there's no possible way that you can deny it anymore. This guy just is not really... Day-to-day. Day-to-day. Every day, he, he does something that is just prima facie incredibly dumb. Exactly. Um, and, and publicly. Uh, and yeah. in a way that is not explainable um, in, in any other terms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, honestly, it, it, I was saying this to someone the other day. Uh, Part of this whole thing just makes me sad because Musk is like a worse version of Trump. You know, people talk about how Trump is kind of um, stuck in the prison of himself, you know, because Trump is so riddled with um, like self-loathing and, 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 and vanity and jealousy and all these petty kind of grudges. And it, it, so it must be torture to be, be Trump because he's constantly, you know, every little thing is dinging him and he, and he feels like he has to get some sort of um, recompense or, or, or prove himself. And Musk is like that, but even worse. I mean, the guy is the richest, the richest man. Was, was, Look at was, was the richest. Was the was richest. Was the richest. Was, still, but he's still very rich. Yeah, I mean, he's still, still more rich than anyone else's. Good Lord. I mean, be. he has more money than he, he, he could ever, ever, spending his entire life he could buy two or three more social media networks 
yeah. Well, once yeah, exactly. Once he's done with Twitter, maybe uh, he should get to uh, destroying Facebook and uh, yeah, screw Instagram as well. Why don't we throw that in there as well? But no, you look at Jeff Bezos, right? Bezos also a terrible, terrible human being um, and uh, immensely powerful by virtue of just the, the enormous amount of wealth that he controls. But what's Bezos doing? He's 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 uh, clearly taking a lot of steroids, getting super jacked, um, <laughs> traveling around, going to space, uh, you know, taking selfies with attractive women, all this stuff. He's he's kind of uh, uh, dealing with his past damage and his you know whatever inadequacies he feels from his um, adolescence and young adulthood by just kind of like living his his best life as as, as he would define it, right? Whereas Musk. You know, he he's able to do the same thing. You know, he he, he was married to to a pop star, you know, and and you know, he, he he got to do all this cool rich guy stuff. But at the end of the day, um, he he cannot escape himself. He he cannot escape the the uh people on Twitter that are making fun of him and insulting him. He he feels compelled to to to, to Surely to people wouldn't do himself. that. Surely people wouldn't. Oh yeah. So you know, I mean, it, it, as as uh. That's really, really interesting you say that because I think that's like you're framing it around Musk, but it's actually a broader thing that's happening in Silicon Valley at the moment. Mm. So it's certainly not just Musk who's who's going down this pathway. And so um, you might have seen like a few tech journalists and people recently talking about these radicalized VCs and like why are they using that term to describe these, these people in Silicon Valley. Um, and it's just, it's exactly that dynamic that you described. They get so upset when standard journalism practices go out and criticize them, even just ask questions about their business practices and their companies. And now that the kind of the sheen has fallen off Silicon Valley decision-making and people are opening up their kind of like public, broader public awareness that these people are just like Ivy League, um, kind of rich kids with um, you know basically had all the privilege and it was really easy for them to to fail and they they got in at the early stage of the internet and they got lucky um, and that's all that there is to it there's no, no genius there's no sort of special kind of vision or anything um, and that this is really challenging for a lot of these VCs and some of the billionaires and multi-millionaires and just that general kind of investor class um, and you've seen this behavior. I've, I've seen this behavior from a number of them. Um, it's 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 super weird, but it's actually like the problem is it's actually materially bad because they're when they lash out, they actually do cause damage and they do fuck things up. Um, and you know, at the moment, I think what's happening is that um, it's kind of like this dynamic of Musk surrounding himself, uh, surrounding himself with sycophants and yes men everywhere he goes and then expecting this kind of this online fandom to follow that he gets this criticism um these vcs are getting huge amounts of criticism now in the same way but also from journalists um who are actually uncovering like how how bad their business decisions are uh, and talking about it and publicizing it and so like they are very very much uh, a class and they very much despite their kind of animosity towards one another have clearly shown a lot of interest in working together and they, they just want to blow it all away they just don't they don't they actually genuinely don't believe in um like free speech is just a total joke at this point anyway but they 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 don't believe in journalism like they they yeah. want to control 
like the message. It's a public relations thing for them. Yeah, no, I mean, tech uh, has a very well documented history of, of hostility to to any sort of investigative reporting um, because they just they they fundamentally because of their ideology, this kind of Andean kind of uh, view of themselves as these, these like, you know supermen who are doing these amazing things, and you know the puny mortals like us, we don't understand this stuff. They they see themselves as kind of fundamentally above kind of. Uh, human accountability and, and the accountability of, of you know the peons that they, they rule over um, and, and the best example of that you know off the top of my head is uh, is is uh, evil billionaire vampire and a fellow New Zealander Peter Thiel um, who uh, uh, of course destroyed Gorka because I mean Gorka did do kind of screwed up thing they they outed him um, you know when he was not publicly out um, but what he did in response was to you well fund a lawsuit against Gorka. Um, again, Gorka stepped in it for sure because because I mean God uh, the, to even go into this, they 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 published the sex tape of um, uh, uh, a, a, a Florida DJ having sex with uh, oh no, no no I'm sorry it was Hulk Hogan having sex with Hulk Hogan, Hogan yeah. his wife. Uh, and then Hulk Hogan sued them, Peter Thiel found it, and Gorka went, went bankrupt. But that was a very scary thing, the idea that a tech billionaire, with, I mean, the amount of money these people have, again, it's, it's, it's when you really think about what a billion dollars is, just $1 billion, um, that is an almost uh, uh, unfathomable amount of money that, that you can use to um, fund frivolous lawsuits, even if they don't go anywhere. Um, you know that you can end up bankrupting the the other side. And I think so, this is yeah, the thing, right? Yeah, to absolutely. to them, it's not frivolous. They have this uh, legal power that they can use, and they will use it to destroy people uh, if it is something they find important. Like where we're calling the they're frivolous in the sense that they don't need to do this. Yeah, well, frivolous in the sense of they. This is not about really a thing that they care about. But what they what they care about is getting some sort of revenge or, or removing some sort of accountability from themselves. But yeah, anyway, I mean, you know, uh, but that is the uh, peculiar um, psyche, psychological makeup of of these people. Um, perhaps we should actually get into the the crux of the issue, which is, and and you know, we slightly talked about this uh before um either in the show or between shows um so i don't know uh your guys exact position on this but but the the entire twitter files controversy and the entire controversy over uh twitter censorship because i'll you know i'll tell you my view to to me so wait before before you start with your view what was the twitter files sure it was uh okay good lord uh in 2020 the uh, New York Post, which is a right-leaning uh, 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 New York paper, a very old paper, but it's basically a, a pretty scurrilous tabloid, but that, that still does some some legitimate reporting, don't get me wrong, um, published uh, what was meant to be kind of a Republican October surprise in the 2020 election. It was uh, the contents of Hunter Biden, the son of the Democratic presidential candidate, Joe Biden, his laptop that he had left with this um, laptop repair owner, um, uh, had left it there for, I think, more than three months. And at that point, it became the legal property of the, the laptop repair owner, who I think was a Trump supporter. Um, he found all this stuff in the laptop. Um, a lot of it was just kind of pictures of Hunter Biden um, doing various X-rated things with uh, 
you know, um, various women and smoking crack out of a crack pipe and doing all sorts of stuff like that. Um, but then there was also stuff, emails that that um, hinted at some of the business dealings that, that, you know, to be clear, Hunter Biden, like much of the Biden family for has has dined out on the Biden name for his entire life and, and has always somehow fallen into these very well compensated positions at various um, uh, uh, firms, you know, the credit card company that was Biden, Joe Biden's biggest donor, the Ukrainian gas company um, that, that was the biggest gas uh, company uh, while, while Biden was um, basically the point man for the US uh, government in Ukraine, so on and so forth. Um, and there was uh, some suggestion that maybe, you know, that, that, that there was some, that, that Biden himself, Joe Biden himself was implicated in these emails. The New York Post published the story um, at the time, uh, a bunch of uh, former intelligence agency uh, people in the US officials, uh, they came out and baselessly said, oh, this is Russian disinformation. Um, a lot of other people at the time, I remember, said, you know, maybe this is not real. Uh, this is all just made up stuff. We can't really prove this is this, these are these are authentic emails, so on and so forth. Uh, uh, Twitter and Facebook made the unprecedented decision. Um, and I think we can discuss about why they did this, but they and, and there's some suggestion in the Twitter files that they would basically try and throttle the story um, because they feared that it was fake or disinformation, whatever. Twitter locked the New York Post out of their account uh, and then actually barred anyone from sharing the story. Um, so you couldn't you couldn't even uh, direct message it to anyone, um, let alone post it. And it would just say, you know, this is this is not allowed. Facebook, meanwhile, said we're going to throttle its reach. We're going to make sure that doesn't doesn't spread too widely and people don't see it. Um, anyway, the Twitter files uh, finally years later, because Elon Musk is such a believer in free speech, as he's demonstrated through his entire tenure. Uh, at the company, he uh, released a whole bunch of internal emails um, to journalist Matt Taibbi and a few uh, other, uh, a few conservative kind of ideologues like Barry Weiss and um, the other guy, I can't, I can't remember his name, Stephen Schellenberger. Um, Everybody else, Shia. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway, but... but uh, People who but, aren't journalists, I want to be very clear about that. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean... Yeah, uh, Taibi is a journalist. Weiss, I mean, there's a journalist, but she is a very much a, 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 a right wing ideologue as well. You know, uh, the other guy, Schellenberger, I really don't know anything about him other than that he wrote a book called San Francisco How Progressives Are Destroying Cities. So that kind of gives you a sense of, of who Musk wanted to give these files to. Anyway, they've been rolling them out over the past few weeks, um, and a lot of people have kind of dismissed it. I think there's uh, some interesting stuff in there, but but maybe let's let's turn to that. I want to hear what you guys think about um, the the release of these Twitter files, which kind of shed light on the decision making around the, the the New York Post story that I mentioned before, but also shed light on a little bit of the behind the scenes deliberations um, mm -hmm. by Twitter executives and officials uh, around content moderation, uh, quote unquote, as the as the uh, the term that is in vogue these days. The first thing I want to like just touch on is the format in which it was required um, for this information to be released, uh, which was they had to be Twitter threads. Uh, so we have like this range of like 60 tweet threads um, trying to do this journalistic, take this journalistic role of revealing what was happening uh, at Twitter during these times using um, this information, uh, which is like absurd, uh, but is, um, and it has led to some really 
interesting ways in which the information has been presented, um, which I, will, I guess I'll try and come back to. Um, the second thing is when some of that stuff, especially the first set of files started to come out uh, from Taibi, it was stuff we kind of already knew. Um, so we kind of already knew that um, there was some level uh, with which platforms in general, not just Twitter, uh, worked with uh, other corporates or, or politicians uh, to do things. Um, and, and we, I mean, yeah, as you said, uh, Bronco, we we knew that stuff, Hunter Biden stuff, uh, they kind of been said to be disinformation and been throttled. Um, we knew there was stuff happening there. Um, we also had a pretty fair idea that uh, kind of security services uh, did stuff with social media platforms. What this did, um, and this is probably where we'll find some divergence um, and, and what our views are on this, uh, was give some examples of this happening you know, actually quoting or, or showing images uh, of these emails or um, or other documents to say, hey, look, they, they really did do this. We had these requests from uh, people in the Democratic campaign uh, asking us to remove these, these few tweets. Because it was a Twitter thread, that meant a lot of information could be alighted. Uh, so you'd have stuff saying... I think within the first 10 tweets of the Twitter files, this uh, process was available to both campaigns um, and then just like to both Trump and to the Biden campaign and then goes on not to talk about the Trump stuff at all, um, which, is you know, whatever. You, he's got a story to sell. But just an interesting thing to include if you didn't want to undermine what you're trying to say uh, with presumably a, a whole range of people that you want to get on board with this narrative. Um, and, it, and it really gave the sense that uh, whatever Musk and his uh, anointed um, reporters were trying to do, it was to build a narrative for a particular political side. It wasn't necessarily to, to reveal things and to do a freedom of speech thing. It was to tell a particular story. Um, and that seemed to me immediately clear right from the get-go. Alongside that, uh, you know, he was talking about, oh, these tweets were being asked to be removed um, without giving the content of what tweets these were. And so, some of these tweets are just like pictures of Hunter Biden's dick, which, like, again, that you know, this is still an interesting interaction to occur. You know, this is still reportable on. But by not being completely upfront about what was actually happening here, it is undermining it immediately and giving arguments to anyone who is wanting to dismiss this out of hand. Uh, and for me, right from the outset, uh, that caused major problems with any free speech narrative this is trying to drive because it was tailored for a right-wing audience. It was tailored for people who are against um, democratic interests. Um, and that's the DNC, not democracy. Um, the Democratic Party. The Democratic yeah. Party um, and Biden. And... Just trying to like chuck red meat to uh, a Republican base, uh, and this you know this is alongside uh, Musk trying to get Trump back on the platform. It's alongside uh, him having talks with other people who might be contenders, and, and talking about DeSantis uh, being a good uh, presidential candidate. And if the purpose was to actually reveal the stuff uh, and and nothing else. I'm not sure it has it has met that, but a lot more has, has come out since. And uh, Mark, what was your what's your take been on it? 
Yeah, well, um, there's a, a lot a lot to process there. Um, <laughs> I guess, yeah, I'm just thinking, I'm thinking about um, how funny it is that um, the, the Conservatives and, and all their, their radical activists they really thought they had this October surprise. Um, and it just it seems like they're still kind of rotten about how that failed. Because I don't think that failed just simply because of, of censorship or whatever the narrative is. I, I think Americans genuinely weren't interested in the contents of Hunter Biden's laptop. Like, they just genuinely weren't interested in it. It was not a story that people really kind of got. You know, it just didn't take off. And I think, um, I, I mean, I think people maybe related to it more, like, understood that, you know, from their own um, their own family struggles and and stuff that like you know um, this was it wasn't like this kind of horrible bad thing that it was kind of framed to be it was just this kind of this um, this off the rails rich kid with a lot of problems in his life and um, and it's just like it's there and it's kind of embarrassing and fucked up and awkward but it certainly didn't really land as like this kind of this. This like this is this is the end. This is the big one. It's all over now. You know, it just wasn't. Um, it wasn't made to be like that. And I think that's a lot of people are very um, still kind of seething and, and upset about that. It's just utterly ridiculous. But I think like going back to a couple of things you said, Kyle, a lot of that a lot of that material was it was doxing, like straight up just breaching the terms of service on, on any social platform. So it's like. There's a it's a really weird kind of line between like this is obviously relevant to report on this is kind of um, it is a thing that happened and it's worthy of giving context and explanation but you can't just dump those files directly onto Twitter and expect them to stay up like that's just not um, after after what happened in Christchurch which I actually think is quite relevant here as well because that had a huge impact on the moderation policies and the, the structure of the organizations at these tech firms. Uh, Twitter hired a lot more people to engage with, with those the, that side of the business. And under their former CEO, um, Dick Costolo, who, so that was a few years ago, but he was a real raging free speech guy. Um, and he really oversaw the growth of Twitter into the hundreds of millions, you know, where it really hit that kind of scale that few other companies have ever kind of reached before. Um, and that was just purely like no censorship at all, no moderation teams, just like free for all content. Um, and then of course, like all the Snowden stuff went down um, kind of around that time. So that was really where those, the original phase of Twitter's policies was forged and kind of allowed all that Trumpist stuff uh, and all that Gamergate stuff to kind of explode because there was just, there was no censorship and moderation whatsoever. Um, and then, you know, there, there had been a kind of, um, after Christchurch, there'd been a, a real moment of reckoning um, because these companies were just, like, they were they were liable and they were um, being criticised all around the world and they were really being, being put to the test. And so I think um, maybe some overreaction. Um, I haven't gone through all of the all of the files in detail to kind of like through the conversations to know exactly what's been revealed there but I think um that like it's quite clear that these that they are not very well organized they don't really know what the fuck they're doing at a very high level not very good at making decisions or executing on them but also there is this kind of environment of oh shit you know we can't fuck this up again um oh shit we can't you know 
we, we can't mess this up. We need to react. It's just a very reactive style of leadership. I think that's one of the big things that's been revealed for me was just, and not not really a new understanding, because I think we, we like many people already knew this. Um, like there's not like a huge amount of new information that's come out. But um, yeah, like having having some actual facts and observations and direct evidence to kind of to to underpin some of this understanding and really like some examples that can be pointed to, um, I think is, is quite interesting. Uh, there's some other stuff as well that's there that hasn't really got any press or any interest because it's it's more tech related. It's not, well, it's not that it's tech related. It's more that it doesn't kind of, it doesn't blow on any particular partisan trumpet or kind of get people that sort of politically fired up. But it, it, again, it's very revealing of just how disorganized the company was and how how incompetent and unprofessional a lot of the leadership has been for a long time. Uh, and I think, you know, that's actually very shocking and that's actually really, really newsworthy and, and relevant because we have a new level of incompetent and unprofessional leadership um, <laughs> you know, going into an environment that was already that dysfunctional. You know, it's, 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 yeah, it's pretty messed up. I don't really know what to think about it, to be honest. Um, well, let me let me give you my two cents because uh, uh, as someone who's followed this stuff, uh, like what happened in twenty twenty and and long before that, um, and and you know took a lot of interest in in what was revealed in here. Uh, first of all, it's, it's frustrated me this entire time that most of the conversation has been about the the meta stuff. It's about all the it's it's filtered through what everyone thinks about Musk. What everyone thinks about Matt Taibbi, what everyone thinks about Barry Weiss, what everyone thinks about the idea of publishing on Twitter. All these things are, are worth criticizing, but to me, they're completely irrelevant. As a journalist, I don't really care what Musk's motivation was. I care more about what's in the actual content. Um, I don't really care it, it, you know, if he gave it to Taibbi and Weiss. I think strategically, it's a bad decision, but ultimately, it's about what's actually in there. Um, and what's in there is actually a pretty big deal. I think there's a big misunderstanding about what exactly the New York Post story uh, was that was censored and why it's a big deal that it was censored. Number one, the New York Post story was not a bunch of pictures of, of Hunter Biden. No, of course. I, I want to be very clear. That, that that was, I agree with this. Yeah, that, 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 was, that was on there and that was taken out um, by, by, by Twitter's censors and, and that I'm, I'm totally fine with. But the, the thing that the actual New York Post story and the series of stories that they report on was uh, about the, the potential, you know, business corruption, uh, 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 you know, with, with the Biden family, which is a completely legitimate and newsworthy thing. Now, uh, what these emails reveal, the, the initial kind of release of Twitter files, the, the thing to me that stood out was the exchanges between Twitter officials uh, as they discussed censoring this and what what is very clear is that they censored it and then it was an after the fact trying to find a justification so they they say quite outright um you know what is the we need to find a justification for this that that is going to you know sit well with the public what's the what's the safest ground here and they decide in the end that they'll go with the hacked materials policy which was this absurd rule that was uh, instituted in the wake of the 2016 um, uh, election. Uh, I'm sorry I have to go back to 2016 here, but, but I, I have to explain some of this. Using context. historical references for shame. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, well, this all of the tech censorship that has uh, uh, intensified since 2016 has been as a result of the 2016 election out of a mistaken belief that the reason that Trump won 
Um, and the, the, the reason that any everything bad, all the political disruption that has happened in the world since roughly 2016 and beyond, so not just Trump, but Brexit, the election of Bolsonaro, so on and so forth, all of it can be boiled down to uh, stuff that happened on social media, which is absolutely absurd. Trump uh, Trump had a social media presence, but Trump's the, the overwhelming reason why Trump won was because he got a ton of free TV media coverage on cable news, on, uh, 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 on local networks, uh, all of this stuff. That was why it was he was on TV all the time, and people thought it was because of social media. Um, and they thought, in particular, they were outraged, particularly Democrats and liberals. Um, they were outraged that WikiLeaks released all these emails, which were then reported on by a bunch of outlets, which are very inconvenient for the um, for the, the Democrat candidate because it showed a lot of really unflattering and and frankly scandalous uh, conduct. Some of it was just kind of stupid and embarrassing, but there was actually a lot of scandalous stuff, including the fact that there had been a whole bunch of pretty inappropriate subterfuge and, and a whole bunch of, um, you know, uh, less than uh, savory conduct when it came to the, the Clinton campaign's uh, uh, tr attempt to win the primary. All of this has been since then kind of reconned as, oh, all of this was just completely irrelevant and not newsworthy and, and it was just a huge distraction and it should never have been reported on. And basically the, the, the media in the US, had, and sometimes they've outright said this, they have sort of regretted the fact that they reported on this, that they did their job and reported on, on stuff that was unflattering to a, a political candidate because they saw themselves as A, helping Trump win, B, helping uh, you know Russia uh, supposedly sow discord um by 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 you know doing the the job for them that's the way they see it fast forward to, to 2020 uh 2020 and what these emails show us that they're saying basically saying you know we don't want a repeat of 2016 i.e we don't want to get into a huge shitstorm when we get criticized uh for helping trump win again so we are going to basically censor this and then we're going to find a, a post-fact justification and the justification was this hacked materials policy the idea that if something is hacked material um, it needs to be suppressed by Twitter and other social media platforms because it's illegitimate, which if uh, you care about journalism at all, uh, uh, th that, that is a completely illegitimate thing to, to censor. Journalists worked from, hacked, uh, worked from hacked materials all the time. The uh, leaks that led to the freeing of Lula da Silva, the, the current president-elect of Brazil, who ended up beating the far-right Bolsonaro, would never have happened if it wasn't for hacked materials that were passed on to a journalist, which ultimately showed uh, the behind-the-scenes machinations of the people who were going after Lula and showed that his prosecution was illegitimate. Um, under Twitter's idiotic policy, uh, theoretically, that, that should have been suppressed. Thankfully, it, it wasn't. Thankfully for Brazil and for the rest of us, uh, you know, because we all depend on Brazil's rainforest not being eradicated by, by its uh, crazy right. So, um, you know, there, there, there was scandalous stuff and it showed that these, these tech executives, you know, are basically, they're not sent, if you're going to have content moderation policies, censorship policies, they have to be, I think, understandable, predictable, uh, uh, reasonable. Um, what it shows is that these guys were just uh, censoring this major story. And, you know, not, not just a minor story. There's, the New York Post, whatever you think about it, is a major newspaper. Um, and the fact that they censored it is a big deal. They locked the, the New York Post out of its own account. That's a big deal. And people will say, well, you know, it didn't affect the election. I agree. I don't think it would have affected the election. I think people were voting for very different 
uh, reasons in 2020, you know, including and what's the, happening on Twitter pandemic. Well, and, and including, you know, I mean, look, I mean, the idea that people are going to look at Donald Trump and say, well, you know, but Joe Biden has this corruption thing going on. I mean, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I find that absurd. Um, so I don't think that that would have moved it. But here, here's my problem. This is not a good, it's not a thing that we should welcome. Um, even if in this case, it would not have affected the uh, outcome of the election. The idea of unaccountable tech bureaucrats uh, behind closed doors, um, based on their own political biases and political leanings, and or even just out of their own craven self-interest, saying we're going to censor um, a piece of legitimate news reporting um, so that we don't get in trouble, or that the, so that the the the, the candidate that, that we want to to win doesn't lose. Um, that is not how uh, a platform with the importance and and um, and, and and kind of the critical role in, in news publishing that Twitter now has, Twitter and Facebook and a lot of other uh, platforms have, should be operating. Um, I mean, you know, do we want in some future scenario if there's a a left wing challenger running uh, for president, you know, for the Democratic primary or whatever? Uh, uh, running against a centrist uh, and, and a, a smaller outlet than you post, an independent news outlet comes out with something, um, you know, damaging to the to the centrist candidate and legitimately damaging, legitimately scandalous. Do we want tech executives being going behind closed doors and saying, oh, you know what? Well, we don't want this out there because ultimately we, you know, this is not the person we want to win. We're going to suppress this uh, story and by the way, this is a tiny outlet that no one's ever heard of. So even though this is a huge scoop, uh, it's probably not going to make that much of a, a difference because people will just, um, you know, the, this outlet, no one, no one hears about it, no one knows about it, so it'll just disappear. No, I don't think that's what the kind of world that we want to live in. In the same way, that I don't think we want to live in the kind of world where, say, the Washington Post uh, gets locked out of its account because it it, it publishes the Access Hollywood tape. Um, you know, late in the presidential campaign that, of course, revealed that, you know, Trump bragging about sexually assaulting women. Um, that was a really important story. It, it should have been out there. It, it, it was relevant for people's decision to vote. Um, the idea that we would all just be very relaxed if, if Twitter executives had done the same thing um, to the Post in that case, I, uh, to the Washington Post, I don't I don't buy that. So I think there is really legitimate stuff. And, and, and I think that the Let's push away all this stuff about, you know, what we think about Musk, what we think his motives are, what we think about Matt Taibbi, what we think about Barry Weiss, all that stuff. Get rid of all that. The, the fundamental thing here is that a, a platform that is essential to uh, news publishing in the 21st century uh, censored a, a mainstream newspaper um, because of a piece of political reporting it did that was highly inconvenient to what it saw its, uh, as its own interests. Um, that is a really dangerous thing for uh, uh, press freedoms in both the US and everywhere else. We're a small left-wing outlet. We, we want to be able to, 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 you know, have our voices heard as much as the big guys. Uh, Twitter theoretically is meant to provide us a vehicle to do that. And, um, and, and if, we, if we just sort of accept this kind of thing and we just say, oh, you know what, it's not a big deal because you know what, at the end of the day, Trump, uh, Trump lost. And so I'm not really bothered by it. Um, well, maybe you're not bothered by it now, but you're going to be bothered by it later. And I think, by the way, the fact that everyone who was completely did not care about the story and saying, oh, who gives a crap, uh, was completely up in arms when Musk then banned 
uh, you know, a journalist of Twitter, and suddenly they're saying, well, hold on, this is a First Amendment violation, and this is totally against press, press freedoms. Well, yeah, it is, but you you can't just complain about this stuff when it, when it affects the stuff that you care about, because the only way to stop it from affecting the stuff that you care about is if you have a consistent position and say, we, we, we're not going to... We're going to keep censorship as limited as possible and not, you know, uh, 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 tread on press freedoms, even when it's inconvenient for our politics. Uh, that's that's what I think. Yeah, I I think one of the things is that, I mean, because I, I agree with you from that angle, but I'm not really a journalist. I'm, I'm a media analyst is kind of the role that I play in regards to the podcast. And if I come out from that direction, you're a journalist. You you were coming okay. with the same press protections as, Fantastic. As, as any New Zealand Herald or staff reporter or you know whatever. Sure, sure, but I'm not. That stuff is coming from the perspective of a journalist, is what yeah, you're trying yeah. to say. Sure, sure. That's one side of it, um, and I think it's important to say, okay, here's the stuff. But that's what I was um, referring to when I said, why was it done in this way? Because it has Very allowed. Stupid. Yeah, it's incredibly stupid because it has allowed those narratives around it to grow and have people dismiss it. Like, if you're a card-carrying DNC member, like, you don't give a shit now. Like, if the goal was, if the outcome they wanted was for people to say, oh, tech censorship is bad, they, they failed immeasurably. And if that's not the goal they wanted, then why did they do it? And that's what I'm interested in. They're, they're clearly not interested in free speech. Um, as far as we can see, Musk is clearly not uh, interested in having a consistent policy regarding content moderation um, and banning of accounts uh, in the same way that, you know, there's this hypocrisy about uh, people being up in arms about Musk's bannings, um, but not so much about the banning of uh, journalists and papers a, a couple of years back. There's hypocrisy to Musk's approach. Um, and making these big claims about free speech while at the same time clearly going like immediately out of his way uh, to ban people who hurt his feelings. It's And then if, if we know that that contradiction exists, if we know that, you know, it's not about free speech, um, or if, I should say, if we can intuit that um, it's not about free speech, it's not about censorship, um, his, his controlling speech um, he is censoring more in certain spaces uh, than what is it about. And in that sense, I don't think that the Twitter files are useful to us in the same way that they're useful to us regarding the historical use of the censorship rules. Um, because the outcome that we would want is, look, this has been revealed, right? Um, it's been revealed that uh, both like security services, uh, political campaigns, whoever are able to interface with the content moderation team in a major social media platform and get decisions that they want, which are counter to what uh, the public needs. It's an argument for competency, right? The Twitter's executives and their leadership were so incompetent that they made these capricious decisions on the fly in this kind of reactive way. And they kind of, they didn't have... Um, you know, repeatable, understandable, kind of legible policy around that. And even though they've been, you know, they've been trying to engage with all this stuff around the Christchurch call and all that for blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's just all like hot air, really, um, because we um, we don't see the effects of that coherent 
policy on the platform. I think you know this is Musk has come in to a very very dysfunctional situation. Now I'm not sure how bad the censorship this censorship issue on on Twitter is. I think you know what what did happen is that the legitimate concerns around around the corruption and um and what what should have been like you know a, a big news story turned into this kind of this farce. Um, that's like one thing, but like major news organizations spike stories all the time internally. There's all sorts of political interference and things goes on like across the board. Um, to me, like the, the Twitter thing is more just that it's such a such a viral platform with such kind of rapid feedback loops and operating at such large scale that these bad decisions have have a huge impact really quickly. And also that, you know, I would say that the average executive or editor at a major news organization are actually much more competent at making decisions than than the people who've been in charge um, at Twitter for a long time. I would also say it's funny, like the New York Post getting locked out because like Jack um, Dorsey, when he was CEO of Twitter, actually got locked out of his own account. Like this is, they, they're just useless. Like they just, this is the level that we're dealing with. We're dealing with these very naive very reactive, like kind of low-level people. They're not actually equipped for the geopolitical reality that they're having to kind of um, parachute into. It's like a, it's a it's a nasty business. I don't think it's about just confidence. Uh, that maybe plays a role a little bit, uh, but the fact is that since 2016, all of these uh, social media platforms have come under intense pressure from the U.S. government uh, to to do more censoring. Um, and actually, the, the, the U.S. national security state has taken more of a role in directing what kind of mm -hmm. things get censored. I mean, that's actually one of the things that, you know, I mean, we're talking about, you know, the way that it was revealed and how that's that's uh, been unhelpful because because it's distracted from the, the issue. I agree. But I mean, we also don't have to talk about the way it was revealed. I mean, there's no, lots of stuff don't. that. That 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 is really important. I mean, some of the other stuff that we have seen in these in these revelations is you you see these emails where Twitter was meeting with the FBI on a weekly basis. With the FBI saying, "Here's what we here here you should look at these users over here, check out these guys over here. You should take this off." Uh, the FBI. I mean, do I do I have to to go? Into history? <laughs> I don't think you I mean, have to do this for our. For it's our not audience. even ancient history. The FBI is an organization that yes, it does legitimate law enforcement work, but also as recently as 2016, on the eve of the election, on the on the day of, of, of voting, the FBI agents visited uh, the the homes of Muslim people all over the United States, and they visited them and said, "Hey, we're just make, checking in on you. We're making sure that you're not going to do anything. That, that everything's fine." I mean, this is this this. This uh, uh, agency has a very recent history of uh, targeting ordinary law-abiding Muslims and just simply uh, dissidents who, who are critical of, of U.S. foreign policy in a variety of ways uh, and targeting them as if they were criminals. Um, do we really want this agency? And I mean, I'm not even going into the, the, the you know, the, the further back history, which is far, far worse than, than even what I'm laying out here. Um, do we really want this agency that, that labels Black Lives Matter protesters, Black identity extremists, uh, dictating what should get taken off and what, what shouldn't? I don't think so. I mean, even before these Twitter files, there was this, uh, uh, all these documents that, that came out in this lawsuit um, that showed that the Department of Homeland Security, aka, if you remember the big protests in, in Portland and other places in the US in 2020, where 
DH, uh, DHS agents were were showing up, looking like they were being shipped off to to you know Baghdad or something in two thousand three. Uh, you know, uh, firing tear gas canisters at protesters, snatching protesters off the streets and shoving them into unmarked vans, doing all sorts of outrageous things. The DHS is, uh, you know, we we see from these government documents, is knee deep. In, in pressuring uh, social media companies like Twitter and Facebook and others to censor stuff, uh, not just election misinformation around what day and, and time voting is and everything, and, uh, but but also things like uh, content that, that happens to undermine faith in the financial system, you know, uh, I mean, stuff that, that really should not be on the purview of, of any censorship regime. So, um, I mean, uh, actually, one of the things that was revealed that there's a, a government portal where uh, federal agents are able to sign in and they they uh, suggest links uh, to to people at, at Facebook for what should be throttled, what 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 contents reach should be suppressed. Um, see, I don't see them. this as a. We already knew the, this. Well, well, no, no, hold on, hold on. We 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 had some indication of it. I mean, the, listen, reporting is constantly the idea that every single no, new report course. has to be some completely new massive bombshell. Is, is that that's that's not how reporting works most reporting uh, is is small incremental bits and pieces added on to, to knowledge added on to what we already know giving us a fuller picture and i mean the fact that the fbi is is, is knee deep in, in suggesting what should get sensitive what, what shouldn't yeah is a really huge thing and it, it completely gives a lie you know it's been very frustrating people have been going all over the place to justify not caring about this stuff they, so, you know, for a while they were saying, well, you know what, uh, at the end of the day, Twitter's a private company. And oh, this, so, this stuff you know, is ridiculous. Because then if they, like, wanna, if they want to censor, that's, you know what, the government's not yeah. doing it. So who cares? People are having to First tie themselves all, in knots. Exactly. Censorship is, is if it, especially censorship of, of legitimate press reporting, it, whether it comes from the government or not is a big deal. But by the way, it did come from the government because the government has been pressuring these companies uh, to censor for more for years and was also... Uh, talking to them every single week in the run-up to, to the censorship of this new post story. Yeah. I mean, I could give you a billion examples. The, the, the way that all of these things have been changed in the wake of 2016 um, to sort of supposedly uh, address the rise of political extremism, um, the, what they've done is it's been almost universally uh, uh, undermining to independent news outlets. Outlets like our own. The, at the end of every every one of these episodes, we ask people to, to you know share our stuff. Please God help give us, us money and <laughs> exactly. And you know, but but uh, because we want to have as as great of a reach as possible. Well, what's happened? All these changes. Um, you know, they're supposed to address fake news, quote unquote, and, and bots and troll farms and so on and so forth. They have all uh, undermined media. I've seen this uh, with the magazine I work at, Jacobin, that was hugely affected by the changes that Facebook made um, in the wake of 2016 to, to news sharing. Uh, so same thing with Google. Google's changing of its algorithm to sort of privilege kind of authoritative, quote unquote, news sources um, above independent outlets. That has been hugely detrimental to, to independent outlets. Um, you know, a bunch of YouTube, left-wing YouTube content creators, they, they'll tell you that that certain videos, certain subjects um, uh, automatically uh, 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 get less views than everything else. Um, this is what the story so, has been know. about, though. Like, it, is that where we are now? Like, this, this is absolutely, you know, we're talking before the cast about, you know, there, there's 
a significant section of society across all political alignments who agree with this, right? We don't want security services uh, in, our, in our social platforms. We don't want governments uh, being able to do censorship by stealth. We want uh, journalists and reporters to be able to speak freely. Has the Twitter files actually created that conversation? Is, is the outcome that we're going to get out of this one where the FBI resiles from that path where the, the DNC and the, the GOP both say, oh, you caught us. Um, guess we're not going to do that anymore. Where Twitter, under Musk or whoever, and look, we, we know what's happening under Musk. Uh, we've seen it very publicly. Do we think we're going to see a major step back from that because of this reporting? That we're going to see a, a better opening up um, of our social platforms? I, I hope so, but that requires talking about the actual relevant parts of this and, and not dwelling on the irrelevant parts. Um, and but, I know, think I mean, this is look, where we it, differ most of all. I think if we if we find stuff important about it, that's the stuff that, that we should we should stress. Uh, we can we can talk about I mean, the, and we can the, definitely the do that. Yeah. bad decisions. Yeah, of course. But but I think the most important thing about things about this are the are the, are the, the, the press freedom aspect of it. I mean, in terms of will it change anything? Look, the Edward Snowden revelations were, were massively important, um, world shakingly important. Um, at the end of the day, they didn't change anything, not because uh, they, they, they didn't have an effect, but because I don't know, our got, um, 20 or so Guardian laptops destroyed from what I've heard. Yeah, yeah, that's right. It nearly got a law passed uh, uh, in the US, except Nancy Pelosi wept uh, at the end of the day to, to, to protect the, the uh, intelligence services. I mean, you know, unfortunately, the reason why it didn't have any effect is because our political systems are so calcified and so unresponsive. To, and, to yeah, I, I, I agree with that. And I, but I think in this case, that that spiking has occurred even earlier in the way that it's been presented. And I think that was intentional. Um, and it's why I'm not, I'm interested in the content of the Twitter files. And as you say, finding the relevant parts, but I'm not interested in the Twitter files. Well, I think it has... It has opened up a conversation. I mean, we're talking about this right now. Uh, I'm, I mean, I've seen uh, suddenly people who are, you know, talking about free speech as if it was uh, an, an anti-censorship stuff, as if it was some sort of uh, swindle or something by, you know, crypto fascists and stuff. Suddenly going, oh, actually, hey, it, it, maybe it's not a good idea that just some rich guy can buy a, a hugely <laughs> important resource for, for publishing and just on a whim change a bunch of the rules and ban people ah, this is a 5d um, chess that musk is doing he's going i'm gonna be so egregiously bad at this <laughs> that that people have to disagree with what i'm doing well it, it's good that he i think as stupid and chaotic as this whole thing has been i think it's been good because one of the people like us have been saying for a long time which is that you know what um it, it's not as if putting Twitter under public ownership or Facebook under public ownership is going to change and, and fix all these things, but it would at very least give some semblance of democratic accountability to, to all these things. Um, and uh, uh, for us to be able to have some sort of democratic oversight over the rules and the, the, the content moderation rules and the you know uh, rules around who can appeal or how you appeal, bans, so on and so forth. Um, and you know that's a conversation that hopefully we we. We could start having now um you know i mean i think there's a lot of there's gonna be a lot of hairy things in that i mean you know among which uh if we talk about public ownership well which public i mean twitter and facebook 
so on and so forth, like global companies that have a global import. Um, uh, but uh, you know, if it's the if it's the U.S. government that controls it, well, that means basically it's just one government on Earth uh, that is controlling it. So there is going to be a lot of there's, there's a lot of difficult things involved there. But I think we've seen that leaving it up to private ownership, where just anyone can come in and just basically decide the rules and for their own, you know, again, political biases and incompetence, as you said, Mark, and a whole bunch of other stuff. Uh, do things that that don't sit right uh, with the rest of us that use these platforms. Uh, you know, I think it's it's time that we 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 start having that that, that consideration really really seriously. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what the future is for these platforms. I think there's a risk in some of the arguments you're making, Bronco, that it's like you want to have your cake and eat it too. You want this platform for this uncensored public good. But the reason why these platforms are so massive, the reason why they could grow to that stage is because in the very early stages, Facebook in particular, Twitter more haphazardly and incompetently, um, were joined forces with those security services. Like they would not have, have grown to that extent if they weren't the kind of blessed ones, the capital flowed in. Like the, the way that those companies grew was material, right? They just they plugged in service. Anyone could have done it who had the understanding of, of how these systems worked. But the reason why these particular companies were able to grow into the hundreds of millions of users was simply because of that investment backing. And that investment backing is kind of, of course, quite, quite specific. Um, but, oh. you know, it's contested in some certain ways. But I, I think that, um, I don't know, I, I think that it's like, that's like a poison pill that is kind of swallowed dealing with these American organizations. Well, I mean, I think we're we're flipping around the the, the sequence of events here. I mean, these these things got massive first, and and by virtue of their size, they they become even bigger because obviously you want to go on a social media platform that everyone else is on, and and it was after they became these central hubs of, of people gathering in digital spaces that the U.S. government decided, oh, well, you know, this is a great resource for collecting information on people, for surveilling people, for influencing political debate. But I mean, I don't think it was because they were picked by the security services. Well, it's um, not that direct, but they were, I'm saying it happened a lot earlier on than people realize that, that their growth, they, they grew kind of in concert. Like it wasn't just that the US agencies randomly woke up in 2015 and went, oh, there's a great resource here. Um, it was, you know, it was a, a lot more, discussion and back and forth going on like the whole way through. For example, Facebook took venture capital directly from a CIA-backed entity um, when it was still very, very tiny. Um, so it was it was kind well, of blessed in that sense. Sure, sure. I mean, yeah. Yeah, you could point to to involvement. You could go back to Twitter. You know, uh, its role in the the Iranian protests way back in the you know what two thousand nine two thousand ten um, as a, as a kind of uh, sign of how it could be used as a as a resource for pushing certain um, you know government preferred narratives. Sure, but I mean, uh, even okay, even if we take that, that if anything only further strengthens the case for why these things uh, should not be in private ownership. Uh, I mean, if 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 already, uh, if we're going to say that the reason why they're as big as they are, I, I wouldn't say that that it's just because of government involvement. But if we if we say that, well, that means this is a public resource from the very beginning. And if anything, we should we should take it back. I mean, you know, you, you, there's, there's going to be a bunch of problems with that again because you're going to still have the problem of, um, you know, the government using it to, to influence narratives to. Hoover up information, all that stuff is still going to be true. But I mean, that's that's the case right now. The only yeah. difference is we also have the 
the double um, whammy of also letting a moron like Trump buy it. Uh, Trump. Hey, same no, guy, really. Same no. guy, really. It's the same, it's the same. same wow. pathology. Slip. <laughs> that, that's just like another layer of, of bullshit on top because now it's just someone's kind of personal biases feeding in to these yeah. pre-existing sort of structures that allow those um, or those amplifications or censorship to be engaged with so rapidly. So the question yeah. is like whether it is happening through back channels, um, you know, via government agencies or, or campaigns or powerful people that have access to content moderation or happening right at the front end via the owner and CEO of the company, how do we uncouple power from our social platforms, right? Like if, if you know, people talk about Twitter as a public public square, you're not okay if undercover cops are out there policing a public square all the time. But you're also not okay if a whole bunch of Nazis rally there. How do we create a situation where it is a space that is actually for the public? That's probably a much bigger question than we're going to be able to answer in even multiple podcasts. I'm, well, no, definitely not. I mean, I, we've had this debate a billion times. I mean, I fall on the, on the, more on the side of, you know, I think uh, if you really want to make it uh, a platform that's not going to be right for censorship of, of views that you agree with, you do have to, to not tolerate abuse, um, but you do have to tolerate to some extent, you know, people that you don't like gathering on there to use it. In the same way that, look, when we use public utilities like like phone lines, there's all sorts of unsavory characters no, that, that not. use telephones to communicate, to organize, to to make criminal plans and 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 other things lower down in the moral totem pole um, that, are, yeah. that are also bad. Um, but we understand we're not going to have you know telco companies you know uh, uh, throwing people's um, phone lines because we decide that they're. That, uh, I was going to tell you about security people. services, Bronco, and uh, what they do with phone lines. Well, they'll tap it, sure. <laughs> but, yeah, it's it's not as if there's some guy who's sitting up in some office. At, at, like, at shut this, shut this one off. Yeah. Oh, I don't like this guy. He shouldn't be able to speak to people on the phone. So, you know, I, I think we do have to, to tolerate to some extent. I mean, I think this is a tough thing. You've got to figure out a balance of, you know, where, where exactly does it, does it cross the line? I mean, I think yeah. if it comes to things like harassment and abuse, um, and, you know, you could even extend it to, to certain, you know, types of language um, that might also be fair. I think, you know, that those are, those are possibly fair game for, um, for, for bans and censorship and all the rest. But, I think um, one of the bigger issues, and it comes after that 2016 stuff as well, um, but it's been a narrative that's been building for a while, uh, is this, and, and, you know, out of the Cambridge Analytica stuff and the kind of breathlessness um, around some of the disinfo um, industry around social media is the most impactful thing there is for radicalizing people but it just absolutely mm. isn't and we we mentioned that uh, at the beginning of the podcast about the free airtime that trump got it was the mainstream um high audience platforms that were spreading this message um and there's, it seems like there's this real personalized feeling around how social media gets into people's brains and like you can do like the most heinous things through social media by um by doing like boomer memes um mm. and the like which on on the evidence just isn't the case at all you know it's yeah. all, all the stuff and worse is happening on on your big media networks on your cable networks um yeah. on the internet at large uh people are gonna find a way to do radio. this anyway you yeah. talk back radio and you're driving absolutely yeah the evidence is mixed but actually talk back is a great is a great example of the same the same communications loop and play 
because um, the issue with social media isn't the sort of content radicalization, whatever sort of explanation um, of kind of addiction or whatever. It's creators being radicalized by the audiences. Like that is the dynamic. That's the problem. It's not. It's not the um, propaganda. It's the social dynamic of it. And like, hey, yeah, talkback yeah. is pretty similar. Uh, maybe not as extreme, but you know, we have Rush Limbaugh who created this new model over a long period of time. Like that. That had yeah. an impact. That had a huge yeah. impact. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I generally think that, um, I mean, there's been a bunch of studies looking at like fake news, the impact of fake news. And it's just, it's, it, it was pretty negligible in 2016. Um, I think the real problem with social media, the real harm, it, it, it comes from the kind of uh, behavior that incentivizes and the kind of psychological impact it has. I mean, Twitter, we all know does things to people's brains um, and it's designed to do that because it's meant to be this kind of as, as all social media is as all sort of um, uh, tech stuff is it's it's meant to be this kind of uh, you're meant to be on that all the time it's a lifestyle exactly right? it's it's meant to be addictive and so on and so forth and, and and there's certain things about twitter the way it's designed that it's made to kind of incentivize people to just be incredibly nasty to each other and to be, yeah, um, it's got negative you know, engagement to... metrics. And in the same way yeah, that Facebook totally. or like comments on a news site have. Yeah, um, Facebook, Facebook and Instagram have have their own problems. I mean, it's, you know, there was a whole thing about how Instagram, you know, uh, has a huge contributor to uh, 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 eating disorders among young girls. Um, and Facebook has, has similar things, you know. So I think those are the the worst harms of social media in terms of the political impact. I don't know if it's that great. I, I think. Uh, Again, you know, the, your, your cable news, your talkback radio, your uh, mainstream newspapers, and, and the like are, are way more impactful um, and, and carry a lot, a lot of stuff that's, you know, pretty politically noxious. But um, you know what has the most weight for how people vote? Just the policies. Uh, <laughs> of course, yeah. Well, and, and aside from one of 200, which of course, uh, yeah, it's the greatest every week moving the political needle in some way. Hey, you know um, what? We do it, we do our best. Um, that oh. like oh we are we are getting on. Sorry, I do want to wrap this up, but it has, how, it's been like two hours. <laughs> how plausible is this? How how plausible is it to to try and solve some of these issues, given what you know about uh, the tech industry and these kind of platforms? People are out there trying to solve them every day, and mm. I think like so. And this is probably what um, what I was kind of putting to you, Branko. It's more like, and I'm I'm not trying to say that it's there's causality. I think it's far more complicated than maybe than I had outlined it in a, a couple of points back then. But I think that the challenge is just scale. Um, yeah. Like we can have great social media, we just can't have it at a global scale, or we can't have it be US controlled. Um, yeah, you know that's that's really the it's, there's a there's a dilemma to do with the US and the sort yeah. of hegemonic stuff, and then there's a dilemma to do with like the tech who pays for it. How is it rolled out? Who supports it? Who keeps it running? Well, you know, maybe maybe we have to start thinking of different ownership models. I mean, if we all agree globally that this platform and other platforms are so integral to our political discourse and the like, um, and, you know, when Trump got banned, I mean, uh, that was condemned by a whole host of, of people, uh, uh, you know, world leaders who, who are not remotely politically sympathetic to Trump, but people like AMLO, the, the leftist president of Mexico, Lula as well, condemned it. Um, so clearly uh, other world leaders, other countries, world, uh, leaders, uh, political leadership sees uh, these platforms as important to them. 
maybe we have to think of some, you know, some sort of uh, ownership model that, 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 you know, rather than being concentrated in one nation state, it, it, you know, we, we, you know, it, it, through the UN or something, you know, I, mean, I know that sounds like a pie in the sky idea, but maybe it's something that we need to start thinking about. We, we're already talking about having a global corporate tax. Um, you know, I know that we haven't, we haven't been able to achieve that, but that's something that's in the discussion. Maybe we need to start thinking about these things as being, you know, having to be globally managed and taken out of the hands of, of one particular, um, uh, uh, the, the government of one particular nation state and being, you know, shared, a shared responsibility. I don't know. Um, yeah, that's, that's one idea that I've just pulled out of my ass. Uh, well, the web, the web already does have that to a certain What's extent. that? The web, the web itself does have that to a certain right, extent. Right. So, I mean, now that's kind of my view that we we can achieve a lot of what we want to achieve just by going down a level and just forgetting about these big corporate titans and just focusing on building really strong and resilient models for collaboration between mm. different jurisdictions around how how these networks work and the kinds of content that gets transferred around and just building protections into that. Like I know uh, a lot of people in the tech industry, particularly at that infrastructure side, um, hate censorship. Like they really loathe censorship to quite an extreme extent and almost a motivating extent. It's created a lot of technology has been created from that that motivation. Um, but, you know, increasingly people are sort of, they, they, they're just seeing the success of these of these titans and just kind of, just like it's there, you know what we can't do anything about it. But I mean, my argument is we can. Um, I, I'm not telling people to divest or like log off and don't come back. Um, I've you know thought about this a lot over the years, but I think we should all be using them less. We should all be investing in them less, and we should all be trying to build alternatives. You know, um, and it's not to say leave those doors open. But I think I think we should be more focused on just fuck it, like let it burn. Um, we'll go do something else over here, you know. I mean, I listen. I I work pretty hard to try and limit my Twitter use, but at, at the same time, uh, it is at least for my work, it is a useful resource. Uh, and I I recently tried to do one of these other um, uh, alternatives. I went to Post News. And I went there and it's, it's, it sucks. I mean, there's the, the, the thing is, there's no one there. All the people that, that I, I find interesting and I find really useful and informative, they're on Twitter. That's the problem with these things become so big that the, the bigness um, kind of justifies their continued existence and, and, it, and it leads to, to, to more bigness. Because <laughs> it's what true. What a line. What a line. They just call it network effects in the tech industry. That's the phrase that well, explains what you just said. Network effects. Yeah. <laughs> what is the what is the usefulness of Twitter? It's the fact that everyone's on it. Yeah. So yeah, it's absolutely. the one stop shop for everything, you know. So yeah. And that's yeah, why that's why we haven't seen really successful competitors over the last 10 years, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. because because of that that success, that runaway kind of action and once you once you get a following on there as well i think it's very difficult to say goodbye to that i think yeah. that's what a lot of people are struggling with at the moment i, could I can't get rid of my 18 i could switch it my eighteen thousand followers that I, I what am i what am i yeah yeah exactly um uh well i mean like all the i think this is a good this has been a good conversation uh you know i don't know if we've come to any firm answers but i, I think these are important things to think through you know um that's, that's my glib uh, <laughs> <up>. <laughs> and hopefully uh, our, our link uh, off-site uh, doesn't get us censored uh, but if you've enjoyed this 
thanks first of all to my co-hosts tonight, uh, Branko and Mark. Uh, really appreciate having you both on to to offer your viewpoints. Cheers, Carl. Thank you. If you've enjoyed it uh, from the audience, give it a share, uh, pass it around, come and comment on the Twitter, um, and, and let us know what you think. Share your own ideas. Um, tell us if you think we fucked up um, and that <laughs> we need to be banned and reported. Uh, we'll have the Patreon link in there again as normal. Uh, otherwise, have a happy holidays. Uh, I hope you manage to get some rest over the holiday season. Uh, and we'll probably, uh, you'll probably hear from us again in the new year, unless I am more tragic uh, than even I know. So we'll catch you in 2023. Have a great rest of your year. See you later. Relentless routines, the dying embers of your dreams, is the lie aspirational. Will you die keeping your glass half full? The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation